We all have a story to tell. Let's tell yours. Welcome to the Intellectual People Podcast with your host, Jason. Come together and listen to journey stories and more from interesting people. Welcome your host, Jason. Today, I have Cookie Marenko of Blue Coast Records, five-time Grammy-nominated. How are you today? Uh, good. Feeling good today. Feeling good today. I'm glad to hear that. So, Cookie, take me back as a little girl. Did you one day say, I want to be a recording engineer? <laughs> no, I never wanted to be a recording engineer. I never, even when I was forced into the position of being one, I didn't want to be a recording engineer. Yeah. So you were a musician then. Right. I started out as a musician. My mother started teaching me the piano when I was four and started taking lessons at five. When I was 10, I started playing the violin because it was the first after school instrument you could play. Okay. Um, and I was continuing to play the piano. And then somehow, like in seventh grade, even though I was a pretty good violinist, I heard an oboe. So I started studying the oboe. Hmm. And the funny thing about the oboe is if you learn it, you can go to just about any college you want because there's so few. And it happened that my high school had five national champion oboe players. So we all got, you know, pretty good. And, and I was asked to be in the San Jose Symphony when it first opened up. Um, there's so many stories that lead up to that. And I was 18, but I thought to myself, eh, do I really want to be playing Beethoven's sixth the rest of my life? So, you know, and then the other thing that happened, funny enough, was when I was uh, 14, my piano teacher needed um, somebody to help teach. So when I was 14, I started teaching piano. And by the time I was 18, I had 80 piano students. Wow. Yeah. And then, um, and then I wanted to start studying jazz and I studied with Art Landy. Um, and I was, you know, got in as an oboe major at uh, college of Notre Dame down here in Belmont, actually, because my teachers were here and I had scholarships, all the rest. But uh, a few years of that, and I, I just, at that time, there was no program for audio engineering or even soundtrack. And what I wanted to do was be a film composer. Okay. And I discovered, yeah, you had to kind of learn that on your own. But, uh, and then I had an interest in world music and I, I studied the um, North Indian sitar. So that's my background, a sitar, piano, and oboe. So did you play professionally at some point? Uh, yes. Yeah. Did, did you enjoy that? Enjoy. <laughs> Were you passionate about it? Let me think back. You know, no one's ever asked me that. Uh, I played professionally because they were gigs. So, right. I, you know, when I turned down the symphony gig on the oboe, I was, you know, I was still taking on, you know, the Christmas classics and um, operas and musicals and things like that. Just kind of one-offs. And I was 
starting to study jazz. So I did play in a few jazz ensembles and actually toured with Sonny Simmons for a while, who was a kind of a underground legend. Mm -hmm. um, he played with Eric Dolphy and John Coltrane. And, you know, so I learned the language of jazz. And then in our own ensembles, we were pretty avant-garde. So we were doing a lot of experimental music. So in that way, I guess, professionally, yeah, we were touring and playing. Um, and I was, you know, making money as a piano teacher and an oboe teacher. Which did you enjoy more, the teaching part and spreading something that you're passionate about or the playing, perhaps even music that you're not really in love with, but you love the instrument? I learned to love teaching. I think I started so young that I just did it and it became part of my life. So it was like a particular language that I learned and what it taught me was how to be a better producer. Interesting. Yeah, because what I what I discovered later was um, talking to so many musicians in the studio and making them comfortable and and giving them the ability to excel when they think they really can't is a whole art form in itself. And and some of the things I learned along the way were not to intimidate the artist by my own abilities. So after a few years, I realized if I talked too much about being a musician or my history as a musician, that would intimidate them and they'd get nervous. And it even got to the point where after a while, when I was able to work with some just tremendous musicians, uh, even mentioning that I worked with some of these artists scared whoever I was working with at the time. So what you learn is to be really empathetic and having that background as a teacher and as a musician, I think gave me uh, a certain insight to what it's like to be on the other side of the glass. And when you were teaching Cookie, were the students always younger or were they most of the time older than you? Well, when I was when I first started, when I was 14, everybody was older than me. But as I got older, you know, then there were some younger students. Um, and and the fun part is, is I'm still talking to a lot of those students of mine. Really? Who, oh, I've had people come back after 35 years and tell me. I changed their life or, you know, now they're retired and thank you for this or that or whatever. And at the same time, I had um, people who were in their thirties and all the way up to one fellow was 75. And I remember when he came in to take lessons, he handed me a list of 12 songs and he said, I don't have enough time in my life to learn anymore. So this is it. These are the songs. Don't even try to teach me anything else. Looking back, was it strange or uncomfortable for you as a 14-year-old girl to be teaching much older people? Uh, you know, not at all. I, I, I don't, didn't even think about it, really. I, I think what you learn to do is organize your thoughts in a certain way. And because I had, I don't want to say a strict, but a pretty formal education, I kind of developed a way of teaching that involved, you know, all the theory that needs to go along with uh, learning to read music and then um, 
developing ways to teach again and again. So what I found was somebody coming in to learn, actually, when they were younger, sometimes it was easier because they had more time. But I figured, you know, even if they can't practice during the week, they were going to learn something uh, in, in the lesson. So I had a kind of a formulaic way of, of teaching. So I knew they'd get a little bit of theory, a little bit of exercise and harmony, and then, you know, made sure they could still count and read music and understood the circle of fifths and harmony. And, and then as I got uh, more interested in sound, as I got older, <laughs> oh my, um, I started teaching them about the overtone series and how, you know, playing it on the piano and listening to the overtones and how to identify and, and sing those tones, um, what in tune meant, uh, you know, all kinds of stuff. So it was a lot of fun. And, um, and when I, uh, you know, eventually created these little books that I would give some of my friends so that they could take over my practice when I got more involved in, in engineering. Do you still play at all? Uh, no, that's a, <laughs> I mean, at all is maybe a strong word. I would say that when I started the studio and we can talk about that later, I was practicing five hours a day and was still in the band in the evenings and still teaching. So for the first three years, as I was making that transition, it was, it was tough. And I finally had to say, all right. If I'm really going to do this studio stuff, I have to stop. Right. And I remember the day I said, okay, that's it. Can't practice anymore. Wow. And the first few weeks was like coming off of drugs. Hmm. I imagine, you know, this. Yeah, I've never done that. So <laughs> me either. But, you know, in terms of just feeling like that, yep. you know, the desire, the dragging over. It was hard. And then um, I realized that I had never gone more than two weeks without playing the piano. Interesting. When I hit, yeah, hit the six month mark, it was, it was kind of over. And then it was just sort of checking okay. in, you know, maybe I play five minutes. Right. It's, you know, it's, it, it is kind of funny because now if I have to play, you know, if I have to fill in a part, I can, I can do it. But you don't enjoy it to the same level. No, not at all. And no. do you think do you think you don't because it was such a it consumed every part of you all the time that it was just a burnout phase? Or do you feel that it maybe wasn't really your passion in life? I think there's a certain fear that if I go back to it, I'll like it too much and Wow. It will take away from the rest of the work. So okay. it, it, in some ways, I think that, you know, I think there's good addictions and bad addictions. And um, actually, I've been studying a lot of things about neuroscience lately and how that all works. Um, that five hours was kind of a meditative state. And even when I was doing a lot of compositions or soundtrack work, there's a certain state you have to get to. And it's a little bit like, do I really have enough time that I'm going to want to do this? Sure. Similar to learning software now, 
You know, I, I want to learn it. Sure, I want to play, but where is the time? And when you have other responsibilities to running a business, uh, you, you have to make priorities. Do you listen to musicians sometimes and say, I could do that easily as a professional musician? At, you know, at one time and say, I, I, they're not very good. I could really do better probably right now. <laughs> so many times in my life. Um, I won't even mention names because don't. I don't want to get in trouble. But uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I would say one of the hardest things to do is to not just say, look, move over. Let me just do this. You know, we just got to get this done. And so I avoid doing that. Um, although there have been times where after the session was over, I did go in and kind of fix a few things, but um, not with Blue Coast Records, because that's a whole other deal. Right. But, uh, you know, trying to get parts done. Yeah, I, I, I think it's more that I don't. Well, I should say it's not that I say to myself, I, I could do this better. What I understand, what I know is how hard it is to be an artist and dedicate your life to being an artist. I know I don't have that kind of drive anymore to go out and, and you know, do the performing necessary and to create all the time on a schedule. Uh, it, it's so, so demanding because it's not, sadly, it's not just the music. It's all the other aspects of somebody's life to be an artist and dedicate themselves. Do you feel as though those other aspects of being an artist is actually more difficult than being truly an artist in terms of the connection of body and instrument? Oh yeah. Yeah. And do you feel as though that's what the main struggle is as a professional musician more than anything? Yeah. I think one of the things I, I did with blue coast was, purposely chose artists that had recorded with me over the years that never really got the attention I felt that they deserved. Mm. And I saw it in the studio. They were just enormously talented, but didn't necessarily have all the other aspects required to put themselves out. You know, nowadays it would be the social media. Right. 20 years ago, it would be, are they willing to go on tour? You know, can they, can they even write about themselves? Can they do a journal? Can they make a phone call at the time they said they were going to make a phone call? So how did Blue Coast actually come about then? You know, there, there were a lot of things brewing. Uh, I opened my studio January 1st, 1982. And the first 20 years were really dedicated towards being an engineer and a producer. I didn't know what an audio file was, never wanted to be a label. In fact, I proved it to myself by working at Wyndham Hill for three years in A&R. And after that, I thought, I never want to have a record label. I thought I had talked myself out of it. And being in the Silicon Valley, I was next to all of the innovation going on and, and had access to being on cutting edge technology. That's what I really loved. But there was a point where, in the early 2000s, music was changing. The level of quality was changing. I worked 
at a company called, um, or worked for as a consultant for a company called Liquid Audio, which developed the first MP3 downloads. And actually, I was the first engineer to record a live concert and have it available within an hour. And I thought that was going to go in a whole other direction. You know, a lot of us did. And when we started seeing what was really going to happen, it, it, it uh, kind of put a wrench in all the plans. And I needed to stop and rethink what I was doing. So after 20 years of running the studio, I took a few years off. And during that time, met an engineer, Jean-Claude Renault, um, while traveling in France. And it turned out his father had a speaker company called J.M. Renault, mm. or J.M.R., speakers out of France. And he said, you don't know this, but you're an audiophile. I said, really? Okay, <laughs> whatever. So um, it turned out he... Um, also felt that there was a lack of passion going on with so much of the music turning to digital and overdubs and correcting and at that time beat detective and auto-tune that we went in search of real performances. And so I chose about 10 musicians, the musicians on the first Blue Coast collection to go into the studio and just let us create a sound that we wanted. Mm. And I remember uh, Gus Guinness came, who had been working a lot with Sony and DSD. So he brought in the Sonoma system to record to DSD. I'm a tape person, so I was recording to two-inch tape. We brought in a Pro Tool system, and we compared at its highest level and didn't even come close. So Gus at one point said, Cookie, aren't you're going to start a label with this music, aren't you? And this stuff's pretty good. And I said, "Yeah, of course, of course <laughs> I am." <laughs> and um, you know, before we even had a a name, we had articles in Mix Magazine that were coming out about that session. So I had to come up with a name, and Blue Coast Records was available. So that's what it was. Why Blue Coast? I live 20 minutes from the ocean and I, I love the ocean. And so a little beach called San Gregorio is like my go-to. And, and I remember I, I work. One of the things that was said to me by the founder of liquid audio, Jerry Kirby, who was a mentor for me, Jerry said, cookie, you can't start a company until you got a name. You don't have a name. Forget it. So the first name I came up with, was Red Sky Records. Everybody <laughs> loved it. Yeah. And then I found out a friend of mine had a heavy metal label that I didn't know about called Red Sky Records. That's funny. So, yeah. So we had to come up with something else. So I just, it just came to me on a, a drive down a, a redwood, little redwood, uh, you know, one lane road. And I ended up at San Gregorio and I said, Blue Coast. People said, you know, makes no sense. A coast isn't blue. And I said, you know, you got to use your imagination. Right. It's a great story. So did you already own all the equipment at that point? Oh, yeah. You did. You had a full studio at that point. I had everything that you see here. I'll okay. give you a little show later. But um, yeah, I, I had in fact, <laughs> I had spent so much money 
um, refinancing my house. I, mean, I don't come, I'm not a trust fund baby. So I refinanced the house several times, sadly, to continue to buy, you know, to fill this potential addiction. And then when I stopped, one of the reasons I needed to take a break too was um, the work is so intense that between always, you're always looking ahead at the next session and it's hard to be present at the session you're at. Gotcha. Because money is always an issue when you own a studio. There's always something new to buy. And um, I don't think of myself as a gearhead, but I wanted I wanted gear that worked. So my taste ran pretty high. So after 20 years of being in business and a half million dollars in debt, I said, that's it. I'm not buying any more. And literally, the only thing that we've purchased since 2002 was the pyramid system that we're using now for, um, for doing DSD 256 and otherwise everything else is vintage. And would you agree that vintage equipment in, in a studio environment actually is the best kind? Oh yeah. Yeah. No doubt in my mind. In fact, I take that back to when I first bought, the Lexicon 224XL, which is a reverb unit. In 1986, this Lexicon reverb unit cost $10,000. Wow. My father said, you could buy two Volkswagens with that money. I said, I don't want two Volkswagens. I want the reverb unit. Wow. So I bought the reverb unit. And what I noticed was even from that point onwards, the next unit Lexicon put out was called a 480. Uh, and the 480 doesn't sound as good as the 224. Mm. And every successive piece of gear that came out from Lexicon had just that much less quality. And sadly, when it came to plugins, it, the plugins don't even come close. So here, I'll give you a little picture of what I've got here. You can see this is my console. Okay. And you can see all the various speaker <laughs> and things. Most of those were given to me for free because when I made a decision not to buy anymore, I had manufacturers who still wanted me to audition and test, which we, we do a lot of. So they would send me the gear. So that's great. So just in terms of purchasing, I've only bought the Pyramix. In, in terms of getting new gear, oh my God, I'm in a fortunate position. Give us an idea of... For a top-notch studio, how many microphones do you have? Obviously, you got that console, but how many microphones and cables and just the smaller pieces of, of equipment do you actually own? Jeez, I'd have to count. I don't really know off the top of my head. Uh, a lot. Of what's happening now, which is kind of interesting, is a lot of friends who had purchased really uh, high-quality mics. Uh, like, we just got these two ribbon mics because... A friend of mine said, well, just this is about two years ago. He said, um, I'm not really recording anymore. You should have these. Mm. I said, oh, okay. <laughs> no problem there. That works well, right? Yeah. Ha does your mixing console, has it had anybody super famous recorded through it? Yes and no. I'm going to define what through it means. 
Um, actually, in the in the back, right there, you can see some preamps yep. that are millennia preamps that are very expensive, and Neve preamps. And um, I actually don't use the preamps on the mixing console. I use outboard preamps, and then it all comes back through the board. Sure. Um, so I use the board uh, really just to mix and to monitor. So it's like a giant monitor system, really. Right. So I consider the recording part of it, the, the microphones, the cables, which we build ourselves, and the preamps. And then the board is, you know, like just a kind of a playback system. Right. With 48 channels. <laughs> right. Um, famous people. Mm, Max Roach. Do you know who Max Roach is? Can't say I do. Max was Charlie Parker's main drummer. Wow. Yeah. Max Roach uh, is amazing. Was amazing. He passed away about 15 years ago, I think. Vijay Iyer is a, is a, a well-known jazz pianist who recently won the MacArthur Award. I think I did six or seven albums with Vijay. Okay. Well-known in the jazz circles. Um, Tony Furtado, Bluegrass, Americana. Fantastic. Oh, you know Tony? I do. Okay. I've recorded Mary Chapin Carpenter, if you remember. Of course. Her works. Absolutely. Although, yeah, we did it. I did a lot of work remotely also. So I would be sent out. Do you feel as though the industry and recording has changed so much that the true natural talent of somebody is often overlooked? Yes. How do you feel about that? Well, that is the reason why I started Blue Coast. Blue Coast was something for me where I, when I was recording those first 20 years, the most fun I had was, or the, the part of the music I enjoyed the most was when the musicians were just sitting in a circle in the studio rehearsing. And, you know, I remember one time Kenny Arnoff, who's a very famous session drummer uh, who flew in for the session, was just playing on the back of a box in a circle with the rest of the musicians as they were learning the tunes. And capturing that, those moments is what made me happy. But those weren't usually the moments that got released. Right. Um, you know, it's, it's still an interesting discussion because... So many of the artists are uh, tied to perfection and they're, you know, they're very raw uh, about their playing. And so they don't want to send anything out that isn't perfect to their standards. Now, their standards and my standards are two different things. What I'm looking for are magic moments, that passion, the chills that get sent down my spine when an artist is telling me the story even if a couple of words are wrong or they're a little out of tune at the end or, you know, something's gone awry. I want to be moved. And that's really why I started Blue Coast was to put an experience together that involved no headphones, musicians sitting in a circle, not thinking about the microphone. That would be my problem. 
and getting uh, that live quality, almost like tiny desk in HD. Yes. So are you saying that that's typically how you record Blue Coast is artists in a circle, like a Bluebird Cafe type setting, if you will, in a recording studio? And it's really that organic and natural? Yes. I had no idea. Yeah, you know what? And I think that that message has been a bit lost um, over the years. And it's it's my fault because I stopped really talking about that aspect. In fact, a lot of times what's happened over the last 15 years is an artist will come in um, and say, Cookie, I want you to produce and engineer my album. And along the way, I'll realize, oh, wow, this person really can just do it without all the overdubs and the other things. So a lot of times I'll say, hey, um, you know, why don't you come in and record an album for Blue Coast? And it usually, you know, it takes like a couple of hours. And then I'll do them a favor. I might record something for them in their album. And, you know, it, it works out. So I get my live tiny desk moments and then for their album, you know, we'll do all the overdubs. Have you thought about doing a live show, a live stream of your recording of those artists? All the time, all the time. I think that the issue for me is, is uh, setting up the video, which we hope to do this year. Okay. It's a small confined space, but um, sure you know the you know all the intricacies of setting it up. You need lighting, um, you know it's it's a lot of work to do the, to do the live. And for anybody listening that doesn't know what Cookie is referencing when she says NPR, Tiny Desk, it's Bob Boylan, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Yeah, and he does a fantastic job with that show. Very well produced, in my opinion, from a consumer, if you will. Um, And the music selection is a great variety, which is really special. There's something there for everybody, and it sounds good. It's really well done. And I think doing it even a step above in DSD would be absolutely magical if people could see not only the process... Because for me, I've been to a mastering studio, but I've never been to a real recording studio past someone's house. And to see a true professional produce, record, and master something would be fantastic. And I think everybody else would love to share that or everybody else would love to have that shared with them. And that would be fascinating to me. So I I hope that actually comes to fruition. Yeah, me too. You know, we've done a few live um, streams many years ago where we invited over our local audiophile club. And we've had um, different occasions, like every couple of years, where we'll invite the audiophiles over or those interested to see how the process goes. And it's, it's really fascinating to have them here. In fact, some of the early recordings, we actually, uh, had the audio files sitting in the back and they were so well behaved. You don't even know that there's an audience. There's a a record out. Yeah. uh, uh, The album called Mutineer. 
Okay. That Jenna Mina recorded with um, uh, Matt Rawlings. You wouldn't even know it, but there's 25 audio files sitting in the background. And what did the artists think of that? It's, a, it's almost like a whole new art form. Because on one hand, you're in the recording studio and you're trying to perfect something. Right. And on the other hand, you, you want to make the listeners happy. So it was half and half where, you know, sometimes we would do two takes of, of songs and um, we'd let the audio files choose which one they preferred. Wow. Yeah. And, and kind of even more interesting is most of them had no opinion. Like they really didn't want to participate in making the decision of which version to use. I thought it would be more exciting for them, but apparently not. So I, I made the final decisions on it. But um, one of the comments was, uh, in Jenna's performance in particular, there's no amplification in the room. So they're hearing her actual voice. She's singing into a microphone. But uh, Matt had, and, and all piano players playing with a vocalist, have to restrain themselves, and that's really such an art form to be able to do what Matt or John Arbor and some of the others do is to accompany a singer. They have to play so soft when there's no amplification that that was probably the most stunning revelation to the audiophile community was how soft her voice really was. Huh. They'd come into the studio. I would play it back to them, you know, enhanced and balanced and touches of reverb. And they'd say, Wow, that isn't anything like what we heard, which is the truth. So how do you perfect your craft of recreating that natural, unamplified sound? On the day that we're recording, I try to position the microphones just right so that, uh, at, well, first I try to position the artist and the instrument in, or instruments so that they can hear each other to perfection and they're adjusting their dynamics. And then once they adjust their dynamics and they've got it mm. right, and I can tell because I used to tune pianos, I know what singing in tune is. When an artist sings out of tune, it's because they can't really hear themselves or the instrument well enough. So it's always you know, adjustments, fine tuning and getting them positioned correctly. Once that happens, I set up the microphones. And the challenge in a room where you've got a piano and a soft vocalist is, yes, the piano is going to bleed into the microphone. And yes, there's going to be times when the vocalist the, pops a pee because maybe they've turned their head because I want the vocalist to have that kind of freedom. Sure. Or they're just going to sing loud. So what we've come up with is a two-microphone system. I, I call it the, the mic, and then there's the backup plan. So you've got, uh, you know, one mic here and one here. So if you get a pop or you get something wrong or some distortion, you can go to the backup plan. I gotcha. Do you record every instrument with a microphone, or are you setting up two microphones in that room just strategically placed? Um, I record each instrument individually. 
Uh, I know a lot of people like doing a stereo mic kind of situation, and that's that's not really my thing. I prefer to get um, a little more of the sound of the instrument. Uh, there was a guitar maker, Rick Turner, who's just a f- fabulous guitar builder. And he once came to me and he said, Cookie, how did you get the sound on that guitar that I built? He said, that was exactly it. You know, and I've been, I've known Rick for a long time. And I said, well, I don't know. I put the mic right about there. And he goes, well, that's exactly where the sound falls. He said, you know, these guitars are built so that the sound falls at a certain place. And once you start to understand how all these guitars sound, you you kind of know where the maximum spot where you're going to get the, the most round sound. If you get too close, you know you're going to get a bump in the tone. Too far over here, you're not going to get the full resonance. There's all these things, but there's this one magic spot. And it depends on how the guitar player plays. A little louder, a little softer, it's all going to change. If they're playing a Taylor guitar, some Taylors actually are built so that when you play a Taylor live in concert, the louder you get, the softer it projects, which is not so good in the studio. So are you able to almost decide on the fly after that guitarist would strum that guitar and know where you need to place that mic? Yeah. So I I usually... You know, I listen for a while. I let the the artist get comfortable. Um, if I'm recording a, a somebody who sings, a singer-songwriter who plays the guitar and sings at the same time, you've got a lot of variations to work with. Like some of them play the guitar louder than they sing. Some of them, you know, it's the reverse. Uh, so you're dealing with the sound bleeding into the other mic. So I make fine adjustments on that. And I add supplemental microphones um, to capture places. I mean, truthfully, you can have the best mic in the world, but if you've got too much bleed, it's not going to be effective. So I've actually gone with less expensive microphones to grab certain sounds and use these really expensive mics to capture kind of a, a roundness in the tone. Do you mind sharing with us what those mics are? Oh, yeah. Let's see. In my collection, um, you know, I have, I go through periods and phases. So, um, like, I I have a a Neumann U87. I have a Neumann U67. I have two B&K 4012s powered uh, that I use on on the piano almost exclusively, unless one of them's giving me a bad day. Uh, We've got these two... RCA ribbon mics right now that are I'm I'm learning how to use that I don't know how I lived life without them before. Why is that? They capture well I can get really close on a vocalist that's playing the piano and not get so much bleed from the piano. But there's also a depth that these microphones capture that is you know beyond what I was able to capture before. And I had some uh, a couple of AKG 414s, which, you know, for they were out of favor for about 15 years. Didn't even want to hear them. I don't even like them now. But I use them because sometimes they're the most effective thing when I'm doing my, uh, you know, my two, yep. my backup plan system. Interesting. So I might use them on a vocalist. 
how do you feel about other companies that are doing something similar to what you're doing? However, the one thing that has always struck me with Blue Coast is not necessarily the sauna quality, because that, that, that's a given, right? That's what it's about. But at the same time, you actually have real music. It's not the typical audiophile music that most people don't really want to listen to, but they listen to it anyway because it makes their system sound better, right? So how are you able to get these musicians that not only... Um, the one that comes instantly to mind is uh, Megan Andrews, who you just released, I believe. And her voice is like gold. So how do you get someone like that? And yet these other companies that are doing HD music are recording elevator music. You know, it's, it's a choice. Um, Megan didn't come with a history or background. I met her actually, at, I was, um, let's see, we have these conventions out here, West Coast songwriters conventions. And they would often ask me to participate as a producer and uh, do one-ons with artists, give them suggestions, you know, listen to a couple of songs and offer up uh, some kind of educational tidbit. Mm -hmm. Well, that's where I met Megan, mm -hmm. Megan and Marco. Uh, they played for me and I went into tears. They were, we were just sitting in a classroom. Megan was playing her guitar. There were no microphones and, and I cried. Wow. And, um, and then because the industry was such a mess, I said something silly, like, man, I'm crying because there's nothing I can do. You should be famous. So um, we left it at that. Uh, we exchanged numbers. And then um, about a year later, she asked if I would produce her record. And I was, I was thrilled. So uh, Megan is one of those instances where you can actually hear the, uh, uh, her version of the album and my version of the album. She's got an album out. And I've got an album out. Uh, one is on her label where we did all the overdubs. The other one is, Megan, please let me put this out just with you and the guitar. Gotcha. And that's, that's Venus Rising. Now, that, that album, what you heard, because over the years, Megan and I, she's been so great at coming to the audiophile conventions. And, and actually what happened uh, with the song you're talking about, I'm on Fire. Mm-hmm. She came up to perform at one of the audiophile conventions here in the San Francisco area. And she played this song. She was eight months pregnant, wow. came up from LA, played it once. And these, she had grown men in tears. Hmm. So I said, okay, tomorrow we're not coming to the audiophile show. We're going right into the studio. Wow. And we recorded that one take. One and take. One take. 
Do you find that most artists at that level are usually one to two takes and that's it? Yeah. You do. Isn't, is that a pleasure for you to be around true professionals like such as that? Well, the funny thing is that they don't even know that they've got it done. Most of them, I can't let them listen back. Like I'll know right away. I think I told Megan, even after I heard it that one time, I said, I don't want to hear this again. You've got it. Now the artist always remembers some little flaw or something they did wrong, or I added one measure or something. I don't think Megan did, but that's usually what we're up against. Typically what happens is by the third take or the fourth take, you end up with the artist being very self-conscious about their performance. And so the passion starts to go away. Mm. And at, at that point, what you have to do is, uh, that's when being a producer, you really show your skills is what are you going to do to distract the artist enough to get them back to that state where they've forgotten how they performed. And you might have to take them outside. You might have to, you know, um, make a cup of tea, whatever you have to do to bring them back to that original state where they're relaxed. Sometimes you have to wait weeks. I, I worked with this one artist um, who literally like every year we'd come back and we'd record the song again, you know, until it was right. Cause I knew he had it in him to do it. It's fascinating to me. Do you find the recording side or the producing side more difficult for yourself? They're, they're so tied in. I actually, you know, kind of my main function these days is more producing. Um, it's kind of like getting in a car is, is it more fun to drive it or to get there, I, you know, that kind of thing or work on it or something, you know, right. Right. To me, it, it re engineering, uh, especially when I'm working on tape, it's just sort of part of what I do. Uh, although last during the last year, we've only done three recording sessions. So I've probably forgotten where a lot of the plugs go, but, um, oh, let me introduce you to Pat. Where's Patrick. He's sitting back here. Hey, Patrick. Hi, Patrick. <laughs> Patrick, he's actually uh, kind of the, the key for allowing me to be more of a producer. Okay. He's operating. He's doing all the pyramids work and all the tough stuff that, you know, it's going to put your hand on fire and, and ruin your whole arm from being on the computer all day. So if an artist comes in and records, say, a full-length album with you, how long does that typically take? Best case scenario. Oh, best case? Sure. We can do it in 15 hours. Okay. Um, I'm, oh, well, I, I should say, if we're talking about a Blue Coast album. Blue Coast album. Okay. Blue Coast album, I can, on a good day, I can knock it out in t about 10 hours. And that's, and that's recording. That's, um, well, five hours of recording. Send the artist home, five hours of mixing and mastering. You That's on a fairly simple session. Like some sessions, if there's a lot of editing that we need to do, because we do edit. We do, like sometimes there's just a brilliant intro and the artist maybe stopped because they forgot the word, so they started over, but this intro was it. So it, it can take 20 and sometimes even 30, like, Sometimes I'll even decide to remix something that's I've had out and available for a while. 
But if the artist isn't here, I can get these records done pretty quickly. Uh, some albums will take the artist. Like if I'm recording an album for an artist, you might as well triple the numbers. It'll take sometimes um, 20 at minimum. If they're doing overdubs, it could be 60 to 100 hours. And why is that? Why would they overdub something so much rather than the natural way and the organic way that Blue Coast is? Well, I think if you're if you're talking about like a wanting to get more of a Pink Floyd album um, or a larger sounding record, uh, something that might have strings or even some of those Tony Furtado records I did for Rounder, not the solo records that I did with Tony, but okay. the um, the Rounder records. Tony wasn't here, but we may he was here for like the basic days or doing some overdubs. But in a lot of cases, you know, you'll have a percussionist who's coming through town. So you bring the percussionist in every song. You're adding a shaker to 15 minutes to an hour to get the headphones right, to get the time right, run the click tracks, you know, so it starts to add up, bring in strings because you want to put down a string part or overdub a saxophone solo, your favorite saxophone players in town. Um, overdub keyboards, add a guitar part. Like it just starts mounting. Every instrument is going to exponentially add to the mix. And then there's decisions with the artist and then there's remixes. So it's a lot of, lot more work. Most of these albums that you're recording for the artists, are they self-funded by the artists and not labels? Yes. And that and, makes yeah. it a little bit more difficult. Well, the the artists that I've chosen to work with are not pop artists per se. So their budgets are limited, although I probably, you know, I, you know the days of putting it on your credit card are probably over. But that's typically what would happen is an artist would put the album on their credit card. Now, back in the day, like, well, working with Rounder, and Tony, for instance, or Wyndham Hill or some of those labels, um, they would give the artist an advance. And that would cover the recording costs sometimes. In a lot of cases, the artist would go over budget even on, on those. Uh, and then there's, I mean, there generally was no unlimited budget. And then I think towards the end of the 90s and even now what happens is, is a label generally gets a, a, a record that's already been paid for and completed by the artist. So the artist pays for everything up front and then finds a label to distribute it. And the labels are deciding how to work with people based on how many followers they have on Spotify. Is that really where it comes from? Yeah. I mean, you know, if you follow Blue Coast, you're probably aware that we weren't on Spotify until about two weeks ago. Yep. And so whenever I was talking to labels, the first thing they would say was, well, how many Spotify followers do you have? I'd say, well, zero. We do nothing. There's no money in, in streaming or Spotify. Right. We focused on the audiophile community who understands what a large file is and why they 
pay more money for it. Right. And they're buying downloads. So we built a following of 33,000 subscribers to our newsletter. And that still is what keeps us in business. Is it really? Yeah. And the reason why we, we decided to take this deal on with Entertainment One, which is a $4 billion company, um, just bought out by Hasbro last year, was for a couple of reasons. One was they're really well associated with film. And we think our acoustic music is perfect for soundtrack work. They actually will talk to us. We can get to somebody on the inside. And they can put up the music. So, you know, the stream is going to be the stream. It's going to collect the same amount. Hopefully we'll have some people on the inside helping with the playlist. But really the probably the biggest incentive was because our artists had fans that didn't know how to download our big files. So many of our artists are, let's say, technology challenged. And they couldn't even listen to the music. Right. So releasing these 29 albums now on all the music services around the world has given um, renewed life to the artists to promote their music because now they know how to listen to it. They can find it. What do your artists think of DSD music? Are they confused by it? What, what are they, what's their general feeling about it? Oh, the, the general feeling is they're blown away by the sound. They'll come to the studio. Um, they'll listen back. They've never heard anything like it. They can't believe it. Uh, I'll play back something over our, you know, speakers in the, we have speakers all over the place, but our, our giant speakers, our AR ones that Sony graciously gave us. Um, and they'll sit and just be blown away. The reality is they're going to get home. They can't afford the gear. The technology is challenging. So they're going to be listening on earbuds or headphones or, you know, to yeah. MP3s. The Blue Coast albums, are they funded by yourself? They are. So you fund those albums, basically, and you're helping that artist. Really completely out of passion, out of love for music, and maybe this personal connection that you feel with this artist to help promote them because you feel as a professional musician at one time yourself that this is their shot and for you to capture something that's magical. Is that, oh, yes. is that accurate? Oh, you're going to bring a tear to my eye. Well, yes, that's okay. That, that's it. You know, I just felt that so many of these artists were so much more deserving and it, and so much of it was almost luck and being in the right place at the right time. An artist like Jenna Mamina is an unbelievable talent that so few people get to see in performance. And she blows away most of the musicians she's playing with. And just her voice. She captures an audience. Why do you think that somebody like that Somebody that's recorded in Cookie's studio. And let's face it, you're well known in the industry. There's no doubt about it. And you record at an extremely high level. Why is someone like that not picked up? Why? I don't understand it. It still confuses me. Well, even, you know, even in the 90s um, and the 80s, 
when I was at Wyndham Hill, it's not always about the music, sad to say. It's about, do we think we can sell this and is there an audience for it? Jazz has never really had an audience. Hmm. It's, um, I come from a, a world of jazz and so it's, it's very difficult to make a living off of recordings. Most musicians that I work with have always made a living off of concerts and touring. And in a lot of cases, that's maybe who you meet, who you run into along the road. Can you find a, a manager? And again, can you return a phone call on time? That's tricky for a lot of artists. Which is interesting. I guess they're more of an artist. They're not a businessman or woman, correct? Well, that that's it. Some artists get lucky and they find a manager who's willing to handle all that. But, you know, it's an expensive venture to be a manager. Almost harder than, than being a recording engineer recording the projects. Uh, you know, bringing up an artist that you believe in and for knowing that you're going to put in five to eight years of your time and energy before you see any kind of money, you probably won't be able to live off of it at that. Right. So you self-fund these Blue Coast records, and basically the way what you're banking on <laughs> is that people are going to buy it and buy it enough that not only will you recoup some of the money that it costs you to to record it and produce it, but maybe make some money for yourself and for the studio. And does the artist get any money? Well, that's the plan. Um, you know, sad to say, most of the albums don't recoup. Really? Uh, yeah. So that's, you know, I, 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 the jury's still out whether it'll help um, having 240 streaming and download services around the world uh, giving us attention. I think um, I believe in the artists and they've given me enough trust that we know we're all in this together mm -hmm. and we're trying to build a bigger community where we can get the music out. Maybe one of them will break through and it'll bring us all through uh, getting a placement on a film kind of, you know, all ships rise with the rising tide. So that's that's really what we're we're hoping for. Do you feel as though the industry has changed so much where you're almost having to rediscover yourself? Oh yeah. Yeah. And I think that's going to come about in the next year. I mean, <clears throat> you look you look at what's successful and it's sadly not music. The streaming companies are not making money. The streaming companies are looking for other outlets, whether it's podcasting, where Joe Rogan makes a deal for $100 million on Spotify. Apple Music has never made mu made money for the company. It's, it's a way to sell phones. Spotify doesn't make money off of... Now, it's, um, it's hard to say. Uh, if I wanted to make money, I definitely would have done something else. But this is what I love to do. So, you know, we hope to eke by and, and in terms of redefining myself, some of the interesting areas I see now are with uh, relaxation music and companies like Calm or Headspace 
mm. insight timer where Fiona has developed a large presence. So, you know, we're looking into some alternate places that we can experiment with, whether it's immersive sound or relaxation and um, meditation and sleep music, combining that with the neuroscience of how it all works and how music contributes to that. That's that's an area that's of interest to me. Interesting. Where do you feel as though Blue Coast and your studio will go in the future? And where do you want it to go ultimately? If you could paint, if you had the blank canvas in front of you and you could paint the picture, what does that picture look like? Because some might say or assume that Cookie wants, you know, that the l largest bands in her studio. However, that typically won't create the magic that you're out to seek and to have performed in your studio, right? Because yeah. those big bands, when it's driven by money, they're going to do take after take after take until it's absolutely perfect and then maybe still tweak on it so it's per perfect, right? To the big labels where what you want is something that it's really hard to describe. And I urge people to go to a bluebird cafe type setting, right? And I hope you agree because that's where magic is made is something like that. And having musicians in a studio and jamming and capturing that has got to be just absolutely magical. Oh, it is. And it's even more than um, the music itself is being part of that experience. And if I could bring that experience to the consumer, maybe the way Tiny Desk does. If I had a, a way to change my facility to be more open to that kind of production, um, that's the kind of thing that excites me. I mean, I'll, I'll have to say that even, I remember a few years ago, Beyonce was doing a, a fundraiser for, I'm not sure what it was, um, but it was a last minute thing that was thrown together and it was just her and the piano. That was eye-opening. Yeah. She can sing. She can. And and that that's the kind of thing that I think gets overlooked when you listen to her own music uh, that's just over-processed and overdone. And no one's, I'm not even sure why. I know she can sing. Right. That's the opportunity I want is let's bring that kind of emotion to the consumer. Absolutely. And I think your tiny desk atmosphere live streamed or recorded and distributed would be phenomenal. It would be absolutely phenomenal because I'm not a much of a movie person. However, watching concerts live well watching concerts in a movie with a proper stereo system because you not only get the the audio but to get that video stimulation is amazing and to have it recorded extremely well in dsd would even be over the over the top right it, it, it's it's an interesting conversation and it's it's frustrating as a consumer because I've seen some magical, magical performances and I have a certain guitar player and every time I watch him, every time I listen to him, 
I say to myself, why isn't this guy on the big stage? Like, I don't get this guy is 52 years old. He was in one band signed at one time in Nashville to a label. And I'm like, what, what is, what is somebody else not see that I see? And I, I mean, I've, I've gone to a hundred concerts in a year. Right. And it's like, I've seen a lot of guys and this guy is better than 90% of the people I see on stage. And I get that a lot of it is being at the right place at the right time and saying the right thing and doing the right thing. And I get it. But the amount of really, really talented musicians that are overlooked is it's heartbreaking to me. It really is. Yeah, me too. It's uh, that's why I started Blue Coast was all the undiscovered talent that is out there. Yeah. If I can just bring them to a few people, I'll I'll feel successful. How do you feel about streaming services such as Cobuzz and Tidal? Well, you know, those two companies in particular have been so welcoming to us. I I'm so happy they enjoy what we're doing. Um, we've got direct relations not only with the marketing departments, but also with the inside. So, you know, I can talk to the fellow who's doing the, it's called ingestion, where we deliver our music. And if something's wrong, I'll, you know, he'll correct it for us. Wow. Uh, Title also has been really welcoming, especially in a time when I, I won't talk about it right now, but, you know, we're uncovering all kinds of suspicious activities going on in the background that, we never knew about, but even delivering the music to these companies is a challenge. Um, I'm just going to say, for instance, when we put up a 192 wave file so that it could be distributed as 192 and it shows up at the other end as a 9624, well, then we know something's gone wrong. Right. We know somebody's gotten in there with a conversion that may not sound so good and it never got our approval. So we're investigating some of those things. And like I said, CoBuzz and Tidal have been really wonderful uh, about letting us get in there to at least offer the best we can. Now, the, the sad reality is subscription services and what they can pay out in terms of sustainable income for artists and labels doing the kind of music we do um, is always going to be a battle. It's, I don't know how it's going to work. Those companies are going to stay in business until they sell. I mean, I hate to bring up the reality, but that is kind of the reality. Um, is we're all looking for, how are we going to fund our music? How do we fund acoustic music? How do we keep a mu keep acoustic music and this live real performance aspect away from artificial intelligence or music created by robots, which is where it's headed. I'm not sure yet. I, I see that. Yeah. There's an educational part that if we do podcasts and teach people about who we are, you know, maybe we get along a little better, yep. but that's a tough question. Are you willing to share how much money 
a stream pays out? Sure. It goes down like every month. <laughs> so, um, you know, what's surprising is that a lot of the major labels don't keep track of this because they're, they're looking at things percentage wise on what certain artists are selling. So they're not re really looking at per stream. Um, Spotify right now pays between 0 0.00175, uh, and that's for a free account, and up to 0 0.0035. Um, this is for streams in the United States. If you look at streams from other countries, it's never more. I've never seen it more than that but I have seen it less. So when you get to countries like India, where they have a whole different economic system, the streams are much less. When we're talking about some of the other streaming services around the world, it's, you can add four zeros and sometimes five zeros before wow. you even hit a number. So it's, it's pretty sad. It's very sad. And certainly people are not, even the largest artists are not making a living from streams. They're making a living pre-COVID by touring, correct? Concerts and touring really has been the, the factor that's kept even the pop artist uh, alive back as far as the Grateful Dead. Right. Grateful Dead were one of the first um, bands that really demonstrated the power of the tour. And I think historically it's still true that concerts and tours are the major part of an artist's career. Um, take an artist like Billie Eilish. Before this last monumental album came out, she already had uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of followers and was touring around the world. Yep. She was being interviewed by Apple, you know, their highest guy in there. Um, and part of that was because Universal made a commitment to her which I think was brilliant. I mean, I actually think her and her brother are two of the more inspiring and brilliant young musicians around. And, uh, you know, they supported her while and promoted her and helped her along. So that's one or two artists out of how many millions of aspiring, talented people. Well, Billie Eilish on a Blue Coast record. Live streamed, couldn't be better. Oh, man. You know, and if we go back to that tiny desk model, I don't know if you saw any of her performances on the Howard Stearns show, but... I did. Amazing. Amazing. I mean, you really don't ever want to buy an album. Yeah. You I just see. want to watch YouTube. Yeah, and, and, it, and that's, part, that's a problem, isn't it? That's, that is the key problem here. And why I think that that model would fit yours so well, right? Again, going back to it. And if it, if there is a way to make high definition DSD mainstream, think of the magic that would, that would totally change people's mindset of what music should sound like and can sound like. Because I think, unfortunately, the compression of music over the years has jaded so many people of what good sound really is. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's part of the reason why 
people aren't listening to music anymore and they're treating it like background music. And, um, you know, just something that goes by that you hear over this, a system when you're walking into a grocery store. Um, it's been overcompressed. So, you know, the frequency responses are gone. The passion is gone. The, the story is gone. Um, it's, uh, I, I do think a lot of people are going to YouTube to look for concerts and I think it's a lot more than the audiophile community. It may not be the mainstream, but I think that, um, well, I, I mean, you would consider yourself an audiophile, right? Absolutely, yes. And you're watching YouTube for these live streams. Correct. As am I. I, I constantly search, and one of my biggest reasons to use any streaming service is to discover the artist. And I say discover. I use that term lightly here to discover new music to me that is by an unknown to the masses because of all my years of seeing live music and i'm a very very big proponent of live music supporting your local bands supporting your local pubs i mean it's really important for music and music education for the younger generations as well and it's um when you start seeing the talent that is out there, it's frightening, as we all will say, that these people, not that they have to be large artists and big, popular, mainstream artists, but they should have a mass following because they are so good and you can get up close and personal. Well, I think that, uh, sadly, you and I are in the minority. Really? And yeah, you've probably been on a number of audiophile forums as have I, and everybody's listening to the same music and it's kind of a club. Uh, they want to feel part of something. They want to feel part of the community. So they spread the word amongst themselves. Like, you know, this person, well, actually I wish they would do more of that with the newer music, but it seems that they, uh, there's a lot of people and not just the audiophiles, but, the, the the general listening public wants almost a christening, like this is okay. Right. E even though, let's say Billie Eilish, you know, if you look pre the Universal releases, you can see what an enormous talent she was. Sad to say, I never heard of her till that record came out. And so, you know, where was I looking at all that stuff? Somebody knew about her and found it. Well, my niece claims to have discovered her. Because, and this is funny, she told me about Billie Eilish one time when I was out visiting her in California. And I was like, okay. She's like, Uncle Jason, let me play it for you. And she played it. And I was like, wow, she's amazing. She really is good. And she's like, I'm telling you, she's going to be big. She's going to be big. And because of the, almost what we've become a condition to, I'm like, man, eh, there's no way. Well, here, lo and behold, here she is, right? And she was right. And, you know, she was 11 at the time. And um, yeah. she's the real deal. There's no doubt. Well, you know, maybe maybe um, younger listeners are more open. I mean, sometimes I think back the early days when I was working with Tony Furtado and every member of the Sugar Beat Band, which is where I met Tony, was a rising talent. And they're all pretty much still in the music business today in you know, the Americana folk 
area and well-known. And even Vijay Iyer, who's won, you know, a MacArthur Award. Uh, you Sometimes you just know at that moment what who, who at least deserves it. It's hard to say, like, what's going to really go over with the public because so much of that depends on how much money is available for marketing and promotion right. and who's willing to take that chance. And is the artist willing to work? Right. I mean, Billie Eilish, we don't hear about all the more difficult days she had in the early part of her career, but um, she did have, sure. you know, some difficult times before everything came together. And look, Jewel is the same way. She lived out of the back of her car and a lot of people forget about that, right? And I think so much of it, just like my goal, one of my goals with this podcast is to humanize people behind the scenes, is that these artists become relatable. So my niece at 11 years old, somehow, some way, Billie Eilish was relatable to her. And that is really important in many facets of life, but certainly in music, right? You have to feel it. There's more, for me at least, there's more than just hearing noise and hearing an instrument. You feel it in a very deep connection and that's, it kind of revives your soul, right? Yeah. Well, and I think you make a an interesting point here in that we have to maybe put some of the fault on the artists themselves. I would, I would agree with that. Because Jewel lived in her car and was willing to take on just that kind of road life. I know that's how Tony Furtado lived for a long time with constant touring in the early stages. Yep. I know that um, Billie Eilish did the same. She was willing to go out and talk to her fans. The artist and this is something I, I actually talk to a lot of them about, is sometimes it's not just the music. Right. What breaks through is themselves, their personality. They need to share who they are mm -hmm. with the end user to build that following. And it can't be just one time when your album comes out and suddenly you make a social media blast. It's got to be relentless. It's over and over. This is who I am. And, you know, it's it's a hard thing to do because you're making a commitment to your fans and to the, and not just not just I want to make a great album and I know I can sing and it's got to be perfect. And and then you put this, you know, big fluff on it when it actually comes out. And then two months later, you're gone. Right. It, it can't be like that, especially now. Back in the day, there was touring and you could, you know, but even the touring, it's just got to be relentless. Right. Thank you so much, Cookie. Everyone, please go check out bluecoastrecords.com and buy some records. Follow Cookie. Follow Blue Coast. She does an incredible job. The music is real. Follow these artists. They need it. They want it, most importantly. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, so you Jason. Thanks for listening. Find us on YouTube and Facebook at the Intellectual People Podcast and online at the intellectualpeoplepodcast.com. Check back for exciting new episodes.